I would be remiss if I didn't mention the metaverse as much as I, <laughs> I know it's a trite response, but really reaching patients where they are, right? And some people, they just want to be at home and they want to be treated at home. They don't want to go to a, a healthcare facility to interact with a clinician. And so this is a way to reach those kinds of patients um, where they are. And so I see a more hands-on sensory experience for um, patients in which they're able to interact with other patients as part of their treatment. They're able to get a more um, multidisciplinary approach to receiving care in that they can receive sort of a social work component and a you know, clinical component and all different kinds of asp- you know, we can treat all different aspects of their condition um, all at once. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio, a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Digital therapeutics are evidence-based software products that prevent, manage, or treat a medical disease or disorder. There are two primary benefits of digital therapeutics, which are increased awareness of a patient's health and the expanded ability to play a more active role in managing their own health. This awareness and involvement significantly improves health outcomes and reduces healthcare demands as compared to more traditional interventions alone. Digital therapeutics are expected to grow dramatically over the next few years, which presents new and significant technology changes. For example, how are these technologies developed, evaluated, and eventually approved? What's clear is leveraging digital therapeutics enables taking evidence-based treatments done in traditional clinical face-to-face settings and making them infinitely scalable and accessible to millions of people. To talk about this, today we're here with Emily Lewis. Could you please introduce yourself? Hey, Kashef. It's Emily here. I'm part of the digital business transformation team at a company called UCB, which is not only bringing digital and tech into the healthcare space to help develop drugs, but also um, bring um, software as a medical device or other products or services to market, which are not drugs. Just to do a little bit of level setting, how do you describe digital therapeutics? I know you mentioned SAMD, the software as a medical device. Are those two synonymous? How are they different? And and how do you, how do you see digital therapeutics? Yeah, so it's kind of, there's uh, three tiers in really thinking about this. Um, so digital health in general would include wellness apps and um, things that aren't, don't necessarily have clinical evidence behind them. And then there's digital therapeutics, which are um, intended to treat disease, uh, well, prevent, treat, manage disease. And there's prescription digital therapeutics, which are the same category as digital therapeutics, but require a prescription by um, a clinician. Okay. Okay. So this is all under the context of digital health. And within that, we have the standard digital therapeutics, which are around preventing and and managing, treating disease. And then a subset of that are the prescription digital therapeutics. Right now, we're currently using the medical device pathway to um, get these products to market. That's the SAMD. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, But it it involves, you know, class one, two, three devices. Class one is the lowest risk. Two is medium risk. And three is is higher risk. Um, And so this pathway... It's been borrowed. It's not perfect. So right. the, the traditional medical device pathway being, you know, a har- device like a hardware, device. software as a medical device obviously doesn't necessarily 
involve that hardware component. We've borrowed this pathway and it's it's currently working, um, but it's gonna be a very slow regulatory process for everyone involved. And so there's an effort to, with this pre-certification program to certify the company rather than the product itself, which is really a, a you know novel way for the FDA and regulatory agency to look at things. Um, so the hope is that by looking at how the company is building the products, integrating the data, um, you know, getting user feedback, um, looking at cybersecurity and privacy, all of those things factor into giving um, the company itself a go ahead to to put products on the market. In data management, one of the biggest challenges was compliance, right? How do you get a uh, a patient to and you know, A, take their drug, uh, and then B, make sure that they're documenting that they've taken it, right? So that's certainly one aspect of it. Um, you also talked about the context of COVID and how everything has been has become virtual. Uh, what are the other reasons, what are the other drivers for digital therapeutics as an industry or as a product? Scalability. I mean, we we know there are issues with compliance and adherence, and people are already carrying around with them reminder devices, and these things can only help um, bring issues of, of health and healthcare front and center for, for patients on a day-to-day basis. So I think it's um, the ability not only for us to reach people in new and different ways and to treat disease in new and different ways, primarily through cognitive behavioral therapy, but there are other mechanisms of action within digital therapeutics that are evolving. Right. Um, but it's just a way to reach more people and to reach people who are farther away from clinical sites who may not be in constant contact with a clinician on a regular basis. So the ability to reach more people in new and different ways is the most exciting part. What are some areas where you've seen digital therapeutics? I mean, you, you talked about adherence, compliance. Um, I, I would imagine there, there are apps that have been created to probably help alleviate mental anxiety or or uh, insomnia, for instance. Um, what about things like diabetes or indications that are not directly mental health related? Yeah, there's a huge application there for those. Um, I think, you know, that would be more companion products um, instead of standalone use products. Um, so a lot of them would be like a smart injector for your insulin pump, you know, um, so that there is some component of the, the digital therapeutic working with an actual medicinal therapy. So I see the application of that being a little different in that it's a little more complex and it involves data being fed in from your pump, for example. Got it. And is, but that still falls in, under the realm of digital therapeutics. Yep. It is managing and treating a disease. So that's, it falls under the definition. Recently, I've heard a lot of noise, a lot of activity around digital therapeutics, but five, 10 years ago, I don't, I don't think it really existed. Um, what were like the first or earlier examples of digital therapeutics? Um, and I guess fundamentally, why, why are we seeing this rise of digital therapeutics now? Yeah, so the, the products that were first on the market were very linear in nature, and they were almost classes. They were a educational experience for patients, um, and that in itself was considered therapy. Now we're getting to a stage where people really want personalized experiences, and so that's where the shift has really come in. People are looking for a responsive product. They're looking for something that is unique to their circumstance, um, and they want something that 
can be modular and um, adjusted to what's happening with them right here and right now. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of these companies are coming up with a catalog of um, different modules that can be inserted here or there um, as they apply to different therapeutic areas. Um, and that allows for a greater personalized experience for the patient. Got it. So you're seeing a paradigm shift between managing these disorders or disease to more of treating it. Well, it was more of a one size fits all previously. And like I said, very linear. And now it's, it's more reactive uh, or sorry, proactive rather than reactive. Got it. More personalized. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, so technology wise, I would imagine that may have played a role in the shift five, 10 years ago you know, the, the ubiquitous nature of cell phones or smartwatches and things like that have, have certainly increased. Um, what other changes do you think sort of spurred this change towards, uh, towards digital therapeutics? Well, there's been just a huge burden on our healthcare system. You know, people, healthcare providers are exhausted, especially by COVID. Right. Um, the, the burden of our healthcare system in its, you know, our healthcare system in its current state can't sustain itself, let alone if we want to continue to reach more and more people, um, sure. like I said, in more re remote locations. And so there's just a, always a need for, for more, uh, reaching more people and reaching them in different ways and digital just allows us to bridge that gap now that more people have access to broadband. Scalability and accessibility, and I guess driving down cost, being able to increase the impact of the resources that we do have. Exactly. So earlier on, you mentioned clinical, uh, clinical evidence-based, right? Could you describe that a little more? What, what does that process look like? Um, and specifically from a technology standpoint, what do you think has changed five, 10 years, right? So uh, 10 years ago, not everyone had a smartphone, not everyone had broadband. I see that that's sort of slowly dissipating. I wouldn't say everyone, but overwhelming majority certainly do. Um, but what has changed from, from like a technology standpoint in terms of gathering the data or uh, storing the data, processing the data, analyzing the data, et cetera? I think um, we are definitely seeing that there, the first companies to put products on the market uh, set a precedent for the rest of the other companies, right, that followed behind them. And they were essentially two studies. And it was a small proof of concept study, probably 50 subjects, and then a pivotal um, larger study, probably N with, within hundreds of subjects. Um, and that was all they felt they needed to bring. And that's all the FDA was requiring for approval of these products if it was a class three um, and it wasn't going through 510K clearance. Um, and now we're seeing a total shift in that FDA approval um, isn't necessarily meaning uh, market uptake or, or uh, um, payers being willing to put this product on their formulary. Um, so there's generally, generally been a shift to a, a need for more evidence, right? That those two studies that, that were the precedent setting studies are now small. not enough, right? right? It's not enough evidence. Um, and so I think about three large payers have come out with statements. I think Aetna um, being one of them. Anyway, um, have said, you know, we're not, we're not covering X product because we don't think that the evidence is there. So there's a, a disconnect between regulators and regulatory approval and, and actual use or um, utilization in the market or, or being able to be on, like I said, a formulary, which allows um, large scale access. 
In terms of what's changed for, for the data itself, I think we're really looking for more real-world evidence, real-world data. So data being obviously the data itself and evidence be, meaning more outcomes. So payers are looking for, um, are you reducing hospitalizations? Sure. Are you reducing costs? And the, the clinical studies that we've done to date don't necessarily answer those kinds of questions. Right. And so the types of studies that they want are, are different as well. So not only is the clinical evidence itself not enough, but they want more HEOR data. Health, economics, and outcomes research data. Okay. This is post phase four. Yes. They one. want continuous monitoring once that product has hit the market to say like, yeah, there's been, you know, X adoption rate and we've seen the actual... Um, uh, utilization of this product to be X, and it's um, thus you know re reduced cost by whatever percent. Um, so yeah, HUR data is is all all post market data, which um, allows us to say to to give better evidence to payers that they should pay. Uh, looking specifically at like the post-market surveillance, right? The health outcomes data. I would imagine there are a few large EHR, EM, EMR systems. They're probably not connected. Um, how do you gain access to that? And then what's the processing? You know, wh what does that whole process look like? Yeah, I think the fundamental shift that this industry or at least pharma is going through is we've always had static products, right? We had a formulation of a, a drug and it stayed the same and that the the data needed to support that never needed to change. Sure. So now that we're looking at more dynamic digital products, we need dynamic bases of evidence to support it. And so that evidence base will always be changing and always be increasing and the needs will always be different. Um, and so what's unique about digital therapeutics specifically is the need to connect in, in real time with connect with systems like EHRs um, and make sure that data is fed into a data lake, for example, and that data across EHR companies is all pooled in one place. And, and that probably they're standardized. Correct. Yeah. And they're using fire or whatever standardization uh, techniques. Um, so yeah, there, there needs to be more of a pulse on, um, the, what's happening out in the real world to feed that back for a full, full feedback loop, um, into the product itself. So I'm sure that payers can help with that. I'm sure they have a lot of those relationships. And so that's another reason why it's important to have payers on your side. Right. Okay. So it sounds like, uh, uh, perhaps your organization or organizations like your like the company you work for are kind of focusing on pulling together EHR data to understand the long-term success uh, or, or benefit of, of some of the digital therapeutics, but there's still the 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 financial aspect that's missing and and that takes the payers to be able to feed back the information is am I am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, I would say that we're we're definitely looking at the scientific data, all the publications behind existing products, um, and we're also looking at adherence and adoption rates. I think the biggest problem we're seeing in the field right now isn't necessarily that the evidence isn't there clinically. I think it's that we're, we need to get this product into the hands of patients and to healthcare providers to really see how it's going to be used in the real world. We've released several products on the market, and we're just now really seeing how they're actually what the uptake is like. Sure. Um, and I think the general consensus in the field would be that it's just not there yet. We need more and more buy-in from all the right stakeholders, 
be it payers or healthcare providers, to really get these products in the hands of more patients to to understand how we can better improve them. Um, and so I know organizations like the Digital Therapeutics Alliance have really strong uh, lobbying with you know members of Congress, et cetera, trying to get codes for healthcare providers to be able to get coverage these for are like the, the ICD codes. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah, and so without those in place, um, you know, reimbursement to healthcare providers isn't there, and so that incentive isn't there, and so we really have some work to do in terms of. Um, getting um, the evidence in front of the right people, the right healthcare providers, and then also making sure that those uh, prescribers are getting reimbursed. Right, right. Sounds like a lot of sounds like a lot of data. You mentioned publication data. What's the role of publication data? Scientific, I'm assuming peer-reviewed scientific publication data. In, uh, I'm I'm assuming you're using that in tandem with EHR data. What's that process look like? Yeah, I think it's really um, non-inferiority to the existing gold standards. So is this digital product, is it at least as good as whatever the status quo is um, for, for standard of care? Um, and if it, it's, at, it's at least as good, if not better, right? So that's what the clinical evidence is looking for. Sure. Um, and also to help kind of plug gaps in gaps in care. So um, if, if it's not targeting the same thing as, say, a a drug is, it's at least um, improving the outcomes that the the drug has. Got it. Okay. And perhaps in your organization or other organizations, what does this look like? Is this just a bunch of data scientists that are plugging through numbers? Could you speak to like the team that are actually processing the data, analyzing it? Yeah. So my team isn't as much focused on the data. It's more focused on, you know, being in an alliance with the Digital Therapeutics Alliance, um, working on their work streams, trying to figure out from a regulatory perspective, what kind of evidence is needed. Um, And actually, I I came to also plug the new tool that the Digital Therapeutics Alliance came out with. It's a digital therapeutics value assessment and integration guide. It's an 80 page document. It's huge, but it's it's an effort to standardize a framework in which healthcare decision makers and manufacturers speak the same terminology, have the same expectations. Um, and so they're really trying to put the tools in the hands of the people making this product and ma- making these products and making these decisions about the products um, so that we're all kind of harmonized. Um, so that, that guide comes out on May the 10th, um, but it'll be a standardized list of questions that manufacturers can answer for healthcare um, decision makers to, to facilitate a better conversation about the evidence itself, about the, the plan for once the product goes to market um, and the ongoing maintenance and um, monitoring of data once the product is on the market. And it, who, who are these healthcare decision makers? Are these at... I'm glad you asked. <laughs> There's a whole page on that. Um, so if I just look at my cheat sheet really quickly, they name uh, advisory teams, product evaluation teams, payers, compliance teams, uh, product access teams, authorizing clinicians, clinical support teams, and end users. So they've got a box of eight different folks who are considered healthcare decision makers. Got it. And then, you know, immediately when I see, when I hear this list of uh, eight stakeholders, right, I would imagine multiple people, there's a lot of moving parts. Um, and then even on the patient side, I would imagine security is a big is a big deal, right? 
how how do you or or digital therapeutics companies um, ensure that my data are are private, right? I mean, it's all PHI we're talking about here. How how do you ensure that? Uh, especially because you mentioned that there's a feedback loop, right? Uh, if if uh, if I give a certain response, it's actually processing that data and then uh, uh, sort of um, modifying the response, personalizing the response for me. How, how do you ensure security? That's a good question. There's a whole section within the assessment and integration guide about uh, privacy and security. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, can you provide a SOC 2 document or a ISO certification? You know, all of those certifications and documentation behind the product really help to give people like myself, who's a healthcare decision maker, confidence that the product has those privacy and security um, tick, tick boxes checked. Got it. Got it. Perfect. Um, do you know anything about the infrastructure? Do you know if, it, if this is cloud-based, if... if this is like completely private, like on-prem. Do you, do you have any insight there? I do not. I guess it depends on the product itself and the manufacturer. So each product could be made differently. And I'm sure, I'm sure most of them do work on the cloud in some regard and have edge, edge technology, I guess, where um, some of the data lives on the phone until you hit cell signal or hit Wi-Fi and it uploads from there. That's my basic understanding of things. No, that's great. That's great. Um, I live in the edge IoT space, so... Uh, it's exciting to hear that. <laughs> um, so you mentioned these, the algorithms behind how you're processing the data are evolving, right? They're they're not st- they're not static. Uh, they should be dynamic. How do you go about versioning? Um, you know, if, if if I if I have data from two years ago when the product, you know, my my medical device was created, and then now obviously there's there's been increased data. Or you would imagine there's increased data. How do you how do you keep track of versions and and make sure that everyone is up to date using the latest data? Uh, and then from a regulatory from a regulatory perspective, what is the impact there in terms of updating a version? Yeah, this goes back to the the FDA pre cert program. So um, if you're going to be changing the algorithm, um, there's a whole set of questions about. Um, the impact of, of those changes. And so some of them will be significant changes and some won't. And so some will require you to resubmit to regulators and some won't. Um, From the beginning. So each iteration of the pro- uh, the product could potentially, uh, and that's the whole sticky space that they're trying to right. avoid is if you just pre-certify the company and say, hey, they, they work by best practices, then people are comfortable with every iteration of their product with some auditing behind the scenes and that kind of stuff to make sure everybody's following the rules. Um, but that's what the FDA is trying to get away from is having to approve each iteration of the pro- of the product, which they realized they, they could never staff or resource enough people to, to support that across what's, what's now many different products. So right. the scalability of, of that, of the monitoring of that is of concern, which is why they're, they're piloting this program, the pre-cert program. Yeah. Uh, no, it sounds like a similar problem that technology companies have, which is moving from waterfall development to agile and just being more iterative. Mm-hmm. And we want those iterative product, products. We, we believe that, they are, that that's what's best for the patient, right? But we also realize there needs to be some checks and balances in place. Sure. Absolutely. No, everyone wants to keep everyone safe. Um, do you have any insight in terms of, right, so you, you've, you have your evidence, you're comparing it against uh, peer-reviewed scientific data, so you can show uh, empirically show that your 
method is better or the same as what's in the market. Um, when you're transferring the data to the FDA for them to evaluate, do you, do you have any insights in terms of how that process looks like? I mean, are you giving troves and troves of, of like hard drives? Like how, how do you transfer the data to them so that they can evaluate, they can kind of come to the same conclusions that you have? I'm sure there's a lot of statisticians involved. I don't believe that they get the raw data. I think there are several scientific questions, hypotheses that are tested in in those specific studies leading up to the pivotal study. Um, and they want what's clinically meaningful, especially, you know, we talk a lot about meaningful aspects of health. Um, they want, you know, not only is this product the same as the gold standard clinical outcome assessment, but is it addressing also their activities of daily living. Um, you know, so, um, the FDA is, is definitely interested in different types of evidence now more than they were before uh, a diversified set, multidimensional set of data, um, in terms of how that data gets actually transferred to the FDA, that's all behind the, the closed, you know, behind the curtain. And, and I have no idea. So you talked about the two types of digital therapeutics being standalone and adjunct, and, and there were two flavors of the adjunct. Um, you mentioned a few examples, mental health, and 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 uh, I know I mentioned the diabetes, kind of the companion therapeutic side of things. Where do you see this going um, sort of five, 10 years out? I would imagine, you know, being that this is your career and, and kind of the space that you're in, you 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 feel strongly about it. But what, what are your thoughts? Where do you see this going in, in five, 10 years? I would be remiss if I didn't mention the metaverse as much as I <laughs> I know it's a trite response, but really reaching patients where they are, right? And some people, they just want to be at home and they want to be treated at home. They don't want to go to a, a healthcare facility to interact with a clinician. And so this is a way to reach those kinds of patients um, where they are. And so I see a more hands-on sensory experience for um patients in which they're able to interact with other patients as part of their treatment. They're able to get a more um, multidisciplinary approach to receiving care in that they can receive sort of a social work component and a, you know, clinical component and all different kinds of aspects. You know, we can treat all different aspects of their condition um, all at once. So it's, um, I, I see this going in a direction where um, we are really responding to the needs of patients um, in a really multi-dimensional way, and, and I'm sure part of that involves um, AR and VR and personalized algorithms and creepy data. <laughs> so, you know, like like privacy will be a huge aspect to continue to focus on, especially as we get closer and closer to the patient. Right. Uh, no, privacy, you know, we chatted about that a bit earlier, right? I think that is a concern now. I think it will continue to be, it will continue to be a, a concern kind of moving into the future. Um, wh what about devices? You mentioned sensory. I'm, I'm assuming you're alluding to like AR, VR, but what about actual sensors? Um, you know, Apple Watch and, you know, things are, are expanding their capabilities. You can now, you know, check your pulse and your heart rate and things like that. Um, I, I think I've seen things around smart devices like glucometers or blood pressure cuffs and things like that. Where, where do you see that going? Yeah, I think the, the wearables themselves are really advancing. I heard even they're looking into blood pressure monitoring and um, blood glucose monitoring as well. I think those are the next 
the uh, what's on the horizon for for companies that are into wearables. But I'm, I think there's a great potential also in what's called demotics. So any kind of technology within the home. So it could be your thermostat, your robotic uh, vacuum cleaner, you know, telling you what what's the temperature been in the house or um, how has your movement been around the house? Have you gotten out of the house today? You know, those kinds of things are indicative of one's health and mental state as well. Sure. Um, and so I think those will integrate into um, the digital therapeutics of the future. Got it. Uh, and then one of my final questions, uh, perhaps not the, the final question, uh, any insights in terms of how these are patented, right? I mean, there's lots of d- data. I would imagine it's private d- or I would imagine it's proprietary data that you're collecting and, and sort of mining processing. But what do you actually patent at the end? How do you how do you uh, sort of secure your asset from an in, from an intellectual property perspective? This question is so spot on because these are the kinds of questions that we ask uh, manufacturers that we're interested in investing in. Um, and their responses have been varied. A lot of it is, well, our special sauce is the way that we put these insights together for the patient. Um, so that's primarily been the response that we've heard, but uh, they, they protect their, their devices, um, well, sorry, their, their digital therapeutics in many different ways. Um, and I have glossed over some of that because I was just like, good, good for them. It wasn't really of interest as much. I mean, we're interested in making sure that it's protectable that, sure. and then we, we kind of leave it there. So before we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, actually, um, I just wanted to take the opportunity to really encourage folks who are interested in this field to get involved with the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. They have really brought stakeholders from across the, the industry together to come together and have a consensus about where this field is going to go. Um, and they've really set precedent for um, how we're to think about these products and how we can uh, optimize them. So really encourage everyone to get involved and once they release their digital therapeutics value assessment and integration guide, uh, pick that up. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Bio Radio. I'd like to thank Emily for being our guest today, talking about the rise of digital therapeutics. I'd also like to thank the listeners. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.